I'm glad that you're joining us today. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are working through a series in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible with you on a phone or a tablet, you can turn to Matthew 22. If not, we're just looking at a couple verses. Trust me, you'll be able to keep along as we go. As you turn to Matthew, um, I got a couple quick reminders for you, information for you. The first one is just like Rich said, um, you should do it. You should get signed up for Rooted. If you haven't done Rooted, um, it's 10 weeks, and I know that there's a lot about it that seems like a big commitment. There's a lot of uncertainty, but I, I promise you, you will be glad that you did. And, and to be honest, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, everything important and meaningful takes time and energy. And so we spend 10 weeks. There's no secret sauce to Rooted. Um, to be honest, like you're not going to go through Rooted more than likely. Maybe you will. You're probably not going to go through Rooted and be like, What? There's a Holy Spirit? I didn't know that, right? Like, there's probably not going to be anything you, like, all of a sudden, like, oh, because that's not really what we're trying to do in it. We're actually just going to spend 10 weeks um, doing a little experiment, and, and, and that experiment is, what happens if we do the things that Jesus tells us to do? What if we do it with other people, and we just do what Jesus tells us to do, and, and here's the really beautiful, amazing thing, is that, is that God shows up in really powerful ways, and so um, I would encourage you, if you haven't gone through Rooted, um, Rooted is, is the way to really get meaningfully connected here, and, and we'd love for you to get um, signed up for Rooted. Um, also, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, I don't know what to call it, but we're coming on, I guess we're just going to call it the anniversary of the COVID shutdown. How do you celebrate that? Like, I, I celebrate not the right word. How do you memorialize that moment, right? We're coming on two years. And so um, probably with you in a lot of your areas of life or in your job or in your family, um, there's been a, a kind of a trying to figure out, like, what, do, what does it look like to be in whatever this season is? Like, whatever this thing is, like, we're here and so how do we do this? And you know, like the first six, nine months was just sheer chaos. And like we were all just holding on to our seats hoping to survive, right? I mean, two years ago, how many of you knew that there was even a company called Zoom, right? And now every single one of us has learned how to use our webcam. Like we've all gotten pros at it. Now some of us even know how to like do the like the, the fake backgrounds and like have a whole setup, right? Um, so the first year was just like chaos, and then we're, we're kind of trying to figure out, like, what does it look like to be in the season? And it's clear that at least for us and our community, um, that things are different. And, and I don't know when those things are going to change or if they're ever going to change back to what they were. And so as the leadership of the church, we've been having conversations about, um, we have to be faithful in this season, like whatever this season is, we have to figure out our calling is the same, is to make disciples. We have to figure out how can we do that as best as possible. And so um, we're having conversations. We're going to start um, towards um, embracing the season that we're in. And that's going to look like if you're in this room, um, we're going to start making some adjustments to how we do things in this room. Uh, because it's a gift to be in this room. And some of you are watching online and you're in this room sometimes and today you're not and like you know that there's something special that happens when you're in the, we, we talk as a staff, we, we said pre-COVID, um, that um, th there's, there's really nothing special about this room. In fact, in fact, if you've been in this room, um, my, my father-in-law, I, I love my father-in-law very much and uh, um, he, he, he might be watching online. Um, uh, we were we were visiting for Christmas, and, and he said this. He said, "You know, you, you guys, 
you guys actually, you guys do a really great job. He's a pastor as well. Um, with like your online stuff, like it looks like for a church your size with your resources, like it looks really like, wow. Like it has a wow factor. And he said, and um, then, you, then you come in the room and it doesn't have the same. Um, somebody asked me, that, you can't see this on camera, but somebody asked me when we had our spitball fight um, that they wanted to be a part of, right? Um, like in here, it's different. It's different when you're in the room. And we said this pre-COVID, we said that there's something uniquely powerful when the people of God gather. And so we want to lean into that. And instead of trying to create a compromise, here's my great diplomatic uh, theory. Um, When you compromise, you just come up with a scenario where everybody hates it just a little bit, right? That's what compromise is. Instead of trying to compromise, we're going to try and lean into creating a unique and gift, a, a, a beneficial experience when you're in here. And then when you're online, instead of like trying to make it just like a worse version of being in person, we're going to try and lean towards. And so so some things are going to start to change. Um, to, To try, our goal is to be faithful to the calling that God has for us every single day, regardless of what's going on in the world. And that's to proclaim the gospel and invite people to follow Jesus, to make disciples of all nations. And so anyways, I, I, I have to stop talking because I'll spend the whole morning talking about some theories we have and what things we're going to try, but we're not going to do that. Okay, so Matthew 22, you have your Bible? I just want to give you a heads up, right? To not be surprised as we, we try and lean into that. Here we go, Matthew 22. We're going to finish up Matthew 22. And, and what... What you may not remember, um, even if you've been here every week because it's been a month since we've been in Matthew, is what's going on. Okay, Matthew 22, for, for much of Jesus' ministry, uh, when the crowds gather, when people start, when he starts to kind of gain attention, if you don't know this about Jesus' ministry, he, he, much of his ministry was kind of like in the backwoods of the country, right? It was, it was out on the outskirts, out on the edges. And, and when crowds began to gather, right, we have the story of the feeding the 5,000, the story of the feeding the 4,000. And um, we think a lot of Jesus's ministry was normative like that. But when the crowds begin to gather, what does Jesus do every time, right? He tells the disciples, he says, um, let's leave here. We have somewhere else. The crowds begin to gather and, and there's energy begins to build and, and they want to um, make him king, right? And, and, and instead he he leaves, but something changes, and it's not accidental because Jesus is God himself, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He knows exactly the steps he's taken. He says um, later that nobody takes his life, but that he lays it down. But it says that Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem, and he goes towards Jerusalem. And he goes to, um, I don't know, if incite conflict or at least welcome the conflict that is to come. And Jesus comes in with a big parade. We call it Palm Sunday. And there's, there's people shouting, Hosanna, son of David, save us, son of David, save us, Messiah. Right? And so there's this, this big parade of him coming in. And, and, and Jesus' popularity becomes an immediate threat in the capital city becomes an immediate threat to anybody in power, religious or political. And so Matthew 22 has been each one of these groups are kind of coming to Jesus to try and kind of um, discredit him or to throw him off his game or, or to give him a question that at least um, somebody's going to be upset about his answer and, and, and kind of try and undercut his, his, his authority, his, his popularity, his power, his, his threat to who they are. They do over and over again. Herodians come, Pharisees come, Sadducees come, religious leaders come, teachers of the law come. They all come and ask these questions. And Jesus, Jesus, um, like, 
does Jesus things, and, you know, so he does Jesus jukes, and, and he answers them in ways that nobody could have thought of in these profound and mysterious and beautiful ways that are, that are more wise than anybody could have thought of because <laughs> he's God, right? And so he answers them, and then he's going to, like, put an exclamation point on this conversation, because he's going to propose to them a question that they can't answer and continue in the same path that they're moving forward with. And in fact, when we read this question, we're going to read this question in just a second. Here's going to be probably your reaction to the question. You're going to go, well, this was a dumb Sunday to show up to church. Like, who cares? This is probably not a question you've ever pondered or, or had tension in your life about, but, but, but I want to encourage you. We're going to walk through understanding the dynamics of what's going on, so I want to ask you to be patient with me because I think the question that Jesus is asking, at the heart of the question Jesus is asking, is the most important question that we as the church, this generation of the church, has to wrestle with. I think that the root of the, the challenge that Jesus is pushing to the religious leaders is the most important question that this generation, the church, has to wrestle with. So, so let's look at what he has to say. Here we are, verse 41, you ready? Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So let's pause there just for a second so we make sure we're talking common language. Jesus is not asking them the question that he asked Peter and the disciples. When Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, he asked them this question. He says, who do they say that I am? You remember this? They say, oh, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. Some say blah, 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 blah. And then he says to them, he says, who do you say that I am? Right? And you remember, Peter says these really profound words. He says, you are the Christ the son of the living God, right? This is not the same question. Jesus isn't asking him because you see, um, a lot of times we, we say Jesus Christ so much so that we think that that's his name, right? That, that like Christ is his last name or like Jesus is just one of those people that has two first names, right? Jesus Christ. When, when, we, when we say Christ, we're actually adorning him with a title that comes with a lot of implications. It's the Greek word, um, for the Hebrew word that you probably understand the weight of, of Messiah, right? So, so they're, he's not asking them, who do you, what do you think about me, okay? That's not what he's asking them. He's asking them, what do you think about the Messiah whose son is he? Now, here's the deal. Um, these religious leaders, they had very well-formed thoughts on who, who the Messiah was going to be. They, they, had, they had painted this really beautiful picture. They knew so much about what the Messiah was going to look like. At least they thought they did. At least they thought they did. And man, these people studied scripture. They poured through scripture. They saw details that we couldn't even fathom, imagine. They knew scripture like, like so, so if you were a well-trained um, Jewish man, there was an expectation at a certain level of schooling that... Um, they didn't have verse and chapter markings, right? They didn't say, they couldn't say, hey, turn to Exodus 7, verse 12. But like that, that didn't mean anything, right? They could say, well, you know, it was, it was written somewhere, and they would begin to recite part of Exodus 7. And then if they were a teacher talking to their students, it would be an expectation that they could stop at any moment, right? They wouldn't tell you what chapter, the beginning, the end. They could stop at any moment, and it'd be an expectation that you knew Scripture so well 
that you could just finish the sentence, okay? This is, this is a people who, who poured over Scripture in such, uh, 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 with such depth that it's, it's hard for our brains to fathom, which actually, um, this is for free. This isn't um, part of the sermon. It, it should give us a little bit of humility. Um, when the religious leaders of their day had spent hundreds of years pouring over Scripture, painting these pictures of what the Messiah was going to look like, they knew Scripture to a level that we cannot fathom. They could see and understood what was going on in Scripture. And when Jesus walks in front of them, they go, nope, can't be him. Doesn't work. That's not, that's not what God's going to do. Should give us a little bit of humility when we try and talk about what God's going to do in the future to recognize and remember that these people far smarter than us, far more dedicated to the pursuit of knowing what God was doing, missed Jesus. So this is what Jesus is asking them is, is um, we call the messianic hope, right? Still today, Jews are waiting for, with anticipation, for a Messiah to come. Jews who haven't followed Jesus are still, the Jewish faith is still waiting. And, and so we ask him, he says, part of, part of this image, what, what's it, who's son is it going to be? And Jesus is going to propose a, a really difficult tension that is just um, mind-boggling and paradigm exploding, okay? So, so here's, he asks them, whose son? They said to him, he knew this, the son of David. Remember when he comes into the city, the, the, the palm trees, you, you remember palm branches, you remember what they, uh, what they said to him? Hosanna! Son of David, right? This is a, a well-known title of the Messiah. Everybody knew that the Messiah was going to be the son of David. And not, you know, but in lineage, in line of David. In fact, the book of Matthew, remember, um, Matthew is a Jew and he's writing to a bunch of Jews. So the first thing Matthew establishes, the first thing Matthew establishes is Jesus in the lineage of David, that he will be a, a son of David, so he knows they're going to answer this. So then he quotes scripture to him. He said to them, then how does David and the spirit call him Lord saying, verse 44, this is quoting Psalm 110. You can go look it up sometime. It's not a very long Psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Here's, here's, the, here's the question at the root of this. It's a question of authority. It's a question of authority. Remember I said at the beginning? I, I think that, the, that this question deals with, the, it comes to the heart of the greatest question this generation of the church is going to have to answer. Who is the authority? Who gets to decide? You, you see, um, the, the Messianic hope said that the Messiah would be the son of David. And there's a lot of scripture that says that, that he's going to be the son of David. And then Jesus comes up and he proposes this like mind-boggling thing. Because you see, um, the son, even the son of a king, could not be sovereign over an actual sovereign king. A, a, a son, no matter what happened, could not have authority over a king. In, in ancient cultures, we, we think of like... Um, there are scenarios, you could think of a scenario today where you could have children and one of your children could end up in a position of authority over you. They could end up as your boss. Um, they, they, could end up, they could end up as a, a, a political person. They could end up as a president. They could end up as the president. Your child, it's not likely, because I've met you. Um, <laughs> I love you. Um, 
I mean, I'm just saying statistically, have we ever had a president come out of Oregon? No, okay? So the odds are against them. But they could become the president, and we think like there's a way where a child could have authority over um, a parent. But not in the ancient Near East. Not a king. To be a king meant to have sovereign authority over the land. There was no king who actually served as a true king who anybody who bowed their knee to anybody. Not a single person. There is nobody that they would have bent their knee to. So, so Jesus is asking them this question. If he's his son, then how does he? The word actually there in, in Hebrew, um, in, in actual Psalm 110, it says this. It says, uh, Yahweh said to my Adonai. And a lot of times we use the word Adonai to talk of the Lord. And then sometimes it gets awkward. Have you ever read scripture? Um, and, and there's one person talking to another person and they talk to the other person and they call them my Lord, right? Um, because Adonai was used of God, but, but it wasn't exclusively used of God. It was a pretty common word just to say master, right? And, and so what David is saying, the sovereign king of Israel, the, the symbol, the, the epitome of what it means to be the sovereign king of God's people says, God said to my master, and he proposes this really tenuous question of how, how could that be so? And what he's proposing to them is that Jesus, that the Messiah is the son of man. He's the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And it's not something that's unfamiliar in the Old Testament. It's just one of those things. Sometimes we read things in scripture and we just have no way of like processing. We have no way of putting it into our categories. I mean, in 2 Samuel, right? Um, you don't have to turn there. Just let me, let me read it to you real quick. 2 Samuel, um, God's speaking to David and he says this, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, right? So a son, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then he says this, right? The son of David, this is son of David he's, he's talking about. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. In fact, this claim of Jesus is at the root of what actually eventually gets the religious leaders to get Jesus crucified, to get him murdered. Um, Matthew 26, right? Let me just uh, flip over for you. Matthew 26, verse, uh, I'll start in 62. It says this, they're, they're, they're bringing these um, witnesses in front of Jesus and making all these claims. And, and, and then it says this, the high priest stood up and said to him, being Jesus, do you not answer? Well, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, right? Whether you're the Messiah, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further do we need to have witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. Because you see, at the root of this tension between Jesus being the son of God or being the son of David, Jesus proposes he's both, is a question of authority. Because you see, if Jesus is the son of David, then he has to rise up through the established religious ranks. A prophet or high priest 
would get a word from God, would, would, would go to Jesus and say, God has called you just as he did with David, just as he did with Saul. God has called you to be king over his people. And they would anoint him with oil and they would have a celebration and it would be under the authority of the religious leaders and of the prophets of the people of Jerusalem, of the Israelite people. But if Jesus is God himself, he gets to do whatever he wants because he's God. And the question becomes, will they bow in submission to him or not? The great question of our generation as a church is who gets to be in charge? Who gets to make the decisions? And, and in fact, the question of authority is actually such, such it, it really is such a foreign concept to us that we would be in submission to authority. Um, I, I, was, I was doing some reading about um, different cultures, and depending on, there's a couple schools of thought, but there's, there's these couple popular schools of thought that um, define culture identity on six or eight different categories, and they, and they put them on this spectrum, right, of zero to 100, and they're opposing possibilities, right? So the one we're going to talk about is um, the, the relationship to one another, identity, right? And so um, some cultures, if you're zero, uh, it, it, very communal, and the only source of your identity is in relation to other people, in relation to the community you come from. Um, you may not even have a name. You may have zero significance. All you are is what that community is, right? That's very communal. On the other end is very individualistic. And you have, you have, you're completely unmoored from any community or family you come from, and you are completely independent. You, all of your own identity and who you are is, is completely defined in you singularly. That's it, Right? Now, what's interesting is in most of these categories, um, most cultures in the world in, in human history uh, end up in, in a range of like 25 or 30 on the spectrum, right? It's not like good or bad. It's not like if you get 90, you get an A. It's just a spectrum, right? And there's a couple outliers a little bit off the way, but one of the sociologists I was reading, he, he said this. He said, when you look at the scale of individualism, um, the United States is such an extreme outlier, we see no other example in any measurement of any nation as extremely different as the rest of the world. The most, most nations, they, they land in this like 35 to 50 kind of range in the measurement. Again, the numbers don't matter, just to give you perspective, 35 to 50. Um, leaning towards being more communal, right? And, and so like in other countries, in, in, in other, and maybe even in your family, generations back, right? You, your family um, came from some other place and there may be a place you're from. And, and I don't mean like a, like a country, but there's like a homestead. Like this is our family. This, the, we are the people of this dirt, right? And there's, there's kind of a grounding in this is our space. This is our universe right here, right? And, th and that's how most World um, identity is seen in relationship to one another, which again contributes to another unique thing about shame cultures where um, your life is informed but also impacts the community you're a part of, right? So 35 to 50, okay, all these things, right? Um, second place, most individualistic nation, I don't remember what nation it was. Um, it was some European nation, I think, or maybe it was Australia. Um, they, they ended up at like uh, 56, okay? 56. You know where America ended up? <laughs> we were like 82. 
It wasn't even close. In fact, the sociologist said we had to come up with a term that we call hyper-individualism that only applies to the United States. And in fact, here's the example he gave. Okay? Not to get too political, but here's the example he gave. He said, um, if you look at politics, everyone actually agrees on the same enemy. We just use different language. Okay? So, so he said this. He said, if you go to um, like kind of the most extreme right end when you're talking about politics, um, and you think of kind of like libertarianism, right? Not, not anarchy, but you know, half a step away, right? Libertarianism. The number one value of libertarianism is is liberty, is freedom, is, is to cast off the oppressive nature of any government rule in your life, right? That's, that's libertarianism. And then um, on this end, um, kind of pop Marxism or social Marxism, which to be clear is different than classical Marxism, um, and Marxism was an economic theory that, you know, we saw lived out in different ways, so we think of Marxism differently. But, but in kind of cultural and pop Marxism, um, it's the same thing. The same pursuit is actually liberty, the same pursuit is, 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 is freedom, but the authority of the oppressor looks different. Instead of over here being governments or organizations, over here it's corporations, or, or it's, it's social pressure, or, or it's, it's whatever category that someone creates that they oppress you by putting a category on, and that the pursuit of social Marxism is to cast off any authority in your life now, they both want to paint very different pictures of the future, but in the end, they both actually have the same exact enemy, and that's anybody having authority over you. The great question that we have to answer is who gets to be the authority in our life? The thing that actually ended up eventually getting Jesus killed is that he claimed to be God, which meant that every single person was called to bend their knee to him that he didn't come to fit into your categories. He didn't come to bless the decisions you'd already made. He didn't come to um, just give you like a little bit of nitrous fuel to push your faith life forward. He invites you to submission. He invites you that life and freedom and hope are actually found in bending our knee to his authority. See, in most other realms of authority in our life, um, people in authority demand our obedience, right? Um, uh, they demand our, our, our submission, our obedience, our allegiance. But Jesus does something different when he shows up. He, he demonstrates his authority. He doesn't demand. In fact, Jesus actually never demands that you submit yourself to him. He's constantly, all through his three years, he's constantly just inviting people. Uh, you remember, um, uh, they're, uh, they're out on the lake, right? They're on the sea, and storm rises up, and, 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 and nature, of all things in the ancient Near East, nature was like the untamable um, force that just did what it wanted. You could, you could plan and you could prepare, but you just had no control over it, and if nature decided, nature did, Right? So they're out on the, on, on the lake and, and the storm rises up and you remember um, Jesus, Jesus just stands up and he speaks. Be still. And it does. And he invites his disciples into submission, into obedience, to bend their knee to him after he demonstrates his authority. You think um, there, there's a guy who um, is just consumed with demons. I mean, more than they can count. And, and, and at approaching Jesus, they quiver and fear. And at the very words of Jesus, they flee. And he demonstrates over 
and over. In fact, what's going to end this week of Jesus' life is going to be the cross and eventually the resurrection, which is the greatest demonstration of God's power, of his authority, of his kingship over everything, including death and sin and brokenness in this world. He demonstrates over and over, but, but he never demands our obedience. He always invites us. In fact, after this um, next chapter, Matthew 23, uh, it's going to be a fun one. Um, do you look ahead? Uh, mine says Pharisee exposed, and then it says eight woes, which just so you know, woes aren't good. It's not like a roller coaster, right? When you go, whoa, it's, that's kind of he's talking about, right? But even after that, even after some really harsh words, some really big conflict with religious leaders, you know what he does at the end? He goes up on a hill outside of Jerusalem and he says, oh, Jerusalem, how I have longed like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings to gather you, but you refuse. The constant invitation of Jesus is to submit to follow. You see, here's the thing. We, we all want the things Jesus offers without having to bend our knee to his kingship. We, we, we want salvation. We want life. We want freedom. We want freedom from the shame. We want the comfort, confidence that we know what's going to go on in the future. We want peace. We want joy. We want to be able to walk with power. We want to see God do um, eternally impactful things through us. The question is, Will you bend your knee in submission? Because, because you see, um, those things, those things only happen in the shelter of his sovereign kingship in your life. When he stands as king over your life, rules as king. There's, a, there's this really great, um, oh, I love this. Look at this. Um, at the end of verse 44, Matthew is quoting uh, Psalm 110, right? He says this. Um, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now, if, if you go to Psalm 110, it's actually not going to say that. It's, it's got the same exact imagery, but it's going to say something just a little bit different. It says this in Psalm 110. It says, um, sit at my right hand until I, put, until I make your enemies a footstool. Okay? Now, imagery-wise, can we see that's the same thing? If, if something's a footstool, it's under your foot, right? That Matthew is is not departing from, but, but remember, we said this already, Matthew is a, and he's writing to a bunch of Jews, right? He wants them to see something. You know what he wants them to see? Genesis 3. Remember Genesis 3? God is sovereign over all. God, God creates and everything is good. And then, then he sees man alone and that's not good. And, and so, so he makes him a woman. He makes a wife and, and he makes community. And he says, oh, it's very good. All of it's very good. Everything's very good. And in fact, even in the beginning, he, he extends some of his authority to us and says, the authority that I have over all of creation, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delegate some of that to you to have authority over this creation. And, and, and part of your submission to my authority is just one rule. There's just one rule, right? There's just one rule. Just don't eat from that tree. And you remember Genesis 3, there's a ripping and a tearing of all of creation. Romans tells it this way. It says that all of creation groans because of our rebellion, because we chose our authority over God's authority. We decided what we thought was right over what God told us was right. And so everything 
tears apart and God comes and, and we, we call it the curse. He, he's explaining to them what's going to happen because of their rebellion, because of this, 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 this fracturing of creation. But there's this one little spot, there's this little hope. There's this, in, in the midst of all this like really depressing stuff, right? there's this one little spot. We call it the Proto-Evangelium. It, it's, it's, it's the first good news. It's the beginning. It's, it's the promise of God that, that even in the midst of the most dark, broken, busted moments of your life, that there's still hope that God's doing something, right? And you remember what he says? He says this, there'll come a seed. There'll come a son. Remember that? You hear that in 2 Samuel 7? There'll come a son, and he will crush him under his foot. Every good Jew would have heard and would have been reminded that death and brokenness came into this world because of our rebellion to God's good authority, but that life and goodness and hope and joy come when we submit ourselves under him, when we let him be the king of our life, because then he will crush under his foot the evil and brokenness of this world and your life. So let me give you some real practical feet to this. Let me ask this question. When was the last time you made a decision that you didn't want to make because you knew God was calling you to do it? When was the last time? For most of us, I would suspect in this room or online that you probably have a question. You have something. Maybe it's, maybe it's huge. Maybe it's big. Maybe it's about moving. Maybe it's about a job. Maybe it's about a relationship. Maybe it's about kids. There's something really significant, a big decision you have to make in your life. Maybe it's just a small one. Maybe it feels relatively inconsequential. When was the last time you refused to move until you knew what God had called you to? When was the last time you stopped Instead of making like a pros and cons list and said, oh, look, you know, here's, here's the list of things that could happen. When was the last time you said, God, you're king, and I will not move until you call me to? When was the last time, before you made a decision, you went and talked to some other uh, mature followers in Christ, and you trusted them, and you leaned to them and said, I need you to pray with me? I need you to pursue God with me. I need to hear your wisdom because until we all collectively believe that God's calling me to step forward in this, I'm not gonna move. But how much more often do we pray a prayer once, twice, maybe for a whole week, but then the deadline comes and we say, well, you know, I mean, I gotta make a decision. I guess I'll, I'll make this decision and hope that God's gonna, I mean, God wouldn't open the door if he wasn't gonna want me to step through this thing. When was the last time, when was the last time God actually sat as king on the throne of your life in a way that changed a decision that you made? Because you see, there's great hope in Jesus. There's great goodness and life and purpose and joy and healing, but only for those who sit under his kingship as, rule, as, as authority and ruler over all. When we don't, just like Genesis 3, things tear apart. But there's always that invitation to come and sit at the foot of the king. So, so, so today, that decision, will you trust him? Will you wait until he makes clear? Will you submit yourself to other mature believers and trust that God can speak through them without having to speak to you? 
And will you make decisions that sometimes aren't the decisions you want to make, but are because you know he is good and he is kind and he is the king of your life?